Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Evo Vandergraaff joins the show for a conversation about what scholars know about Pompeii in the 6th century BCE, so the 500s BCE. Dr. Vandergraaff is a Dutch art historian and archaeologist. He's professor of art history at the University of New Hampshire, Durham, based in the U.S. He has been working on archaeological projects and publishing for 20 years, 15 of which have been at Pompeii, and he's field director at the Oplantis Project. He's author of the book, The Fortifications of Pompeii and Ancient Italy, which was published by Routledge. And Dr. Vandergraaff joins the show today from the U.S. Welcome to the show, Evo. Hello, how are you? Good, Evo. It's good to connect with you again. How's your day going? It's going very well, thank you. Good, good. Okay, so we're going to chat about Pompeii. And as a publishing exercise, we're going to speak predominantly about it in the 6th century. So what scholars know about it in the 6th century BCE. Now, when we had a, um, uh, a previous conversation, we were chatting about this conversation that we're going to have. And we wanted to find... A, a century to, to start where there's enough um, material and enough evidence to have a constructive conversation that can basically last anywhere from you know thir- 30 minutes to to s- under 60 minutes so 30 minutes to 59 minutes uh, ish in, in length so you had made the suggestion that the sixth century is a good place to, to start why did you make that suggestion well, the, the 6th century is really when Pompeii starts to appear uh, in many ways in the form that we are uh, currently uh, more used to it. Um, there are some traces of occupation at Pompeii that predate the 6th century. Uh, in fact, there are areas where uh, we have evidence of um, Neolithic occupation, perhaps even uh, Bronze Age occupation. But the settlement really doesn't take off or the evidence that we have doesn't really become abundant until the 6th century. Uh, We do have uh, first traces of the settlements um, occurring in the 7th century, the late mid to late 7th century BCE, but it's really the 6th century that we see the first major urban developments happening uh, at Pompeii. In the late century, to work our way into the 6th, so if somebody was looking at Pompeii in the late seventh century, what would they have seen? Well, it's important to keep in mind that the evidence that we have is based largely on archeological materials. And uh, those in and of themselves are slightly skewed because uh, those archeological materials have been recovered in large part at the sanctuaries. So there are three major, a number of important sanctuaries at Pompeii, and each of them, or two of them for sure, and one outside of, just outside of Pompeii, show signs of development in the late seventh century BCE. Um, again, that's because where, uh, of excavations that have happened there. Uh, elsewhere on the plateau, the evidence is a little bit more scarce, and I say plateau because you have to imagine that uh, Pompeii itself has been characterized as being a city on a plateau. So it's a a raised area in the landscape which attracted 
the first settlement. And on that plateau, then, we have these two sanctuaries in particular, one dedicated to Apollo and the other one dedicated to Minerva, that seem to be where we find the earliest forms of, of occupation. The sixth century, then, becomes, uh, the evidence becomes a lot more abundant, also because we have some more archaeological material uh, to work with. Okay. And the references to Minerva and Apollo, uh, did you call those, would those have been considered temples? Is that what those were? Yes. So, um, in uh, the literature of Pompeii, on the Pompeian Plateau, so this, this area overlooking the Sarno River Valley, uh, we then have this plateau, which is easily defensible on three sides. That plateau has also been characterized as being a volcanic dome, but we don't need to go into all of the details here. What we do need to know is that those that there are sanctuaries that emerge on this plateau early on. So one's dedicated to Apollo, one dedicated to Minerva, and perhaps also one dedicated to Zeus. The problem is, is that we're not entirely sure what these sanctuaries looked like when they first emerged, because the buildings that are there now, especially for um, the Temple of Apollo, is a much later version that was rebuilt in the second century BCE. The Temple of Minerva, or I should say Athena at this point, um, which people use interchangeably for the sanctuary, uh, seems to be earlier than that. Um, the architecture that survives seems to date to about uh, this this sixth century, and it's a Doric style temple, a Greek style temple in terms of its uh, layout. Okay, and I want to I want to clarify this point then. So these these temples that you referenced are they believed to have been originally built earlier than the sixth century? So they were they were in existence by the sixth century. Yes, and uh, what I should say here is that what we have is a continuity of religious sites and religious practice. So these sites will remain active, although we do have a hiatus of occupation at Pompeii in the 5th century, but these sites will remain active on and off uh, for most of the history of the city. So what we have is then sanctuaries that will be rebuilt, temples that will be rebuilt, but the places themselves are um, known to already have been uh, frequented um, as religious sites in the 6th century, and that's primarily through the archaeological deposits that have been excavated at these places. So you have what we call votive deposits, and these are deposits of uh, gifts that were given to the gods and that were reburied within these sanctuaries. Once uh, the sanctuaries got too full, or uh, parts of the sanctuaries were rededicated, and those uh, deposits then have been excavated by archaeologists. So we know that these sites were active in the 6th century BCE. What we're not entirely sure of is exactly what these uh, structures look like, because many, uh, especially the Temple of Apollo, for instance, as I said, was rebuilt at a much later date. So what this early sanctuary actually looked like uh, might be a, more, uh, a little more difficult to tell. At the end of the 7th century and coming into the 6th century, what's known about who inhabited Pompeii? 
That's an interesting question. So just outside of the city walls of Pompeii, there is another sanctuary, which has been recently been excavated. The sanctuary is known as Fondo Yotzino. And it's always been connected closely to the development uh, of Pompeii. Uh, it is from this sanctuary, which is essentially outside of the ancient city, that uh, recently lots of materials have been found that um, connect at least part of the population to the Etruscan world. Um, the Etruscan world, the Etruscans are uh, a group of people that lived to the north of Rome and what is now essentially modern Tuscany and northern uh, uh, Latium or Lazio. That's where we get the, the, the name uh, Tuscany from. It's from the Tusci, uh, which is how the Etruscans were called in antiquity. And um, in the 7th century and the 6th century, they expanded uh, across the Italian uh, peninsula. And again, we can know uh, about their presence at Pompeii because they produced a very particular kind of pottery, a uh, black kind of pottery, known as bucero, um, which was found in uh, this vote, the votive deposits at the Temple of Apollo and at this other sanctuary, the Fondo Yotzino. Uh, and it is from these, then, um, that we can tell that we have a connection with the Etruscan world. And some of these pieces of, uh, of pottery that have been excavated actually carry inscriptions, uh, Etruscan inscriptions that say, I belonged to, or I am of, and then there's the name of the owner. And from that, we can then connect to uh, groups of people which seem to come out of or be connected to the cities of Cerveteri and Tarquinia, which are in the southern uh, end, close to Rome, the southern end of uh, the Etruscan sphere of, of influence. So there seems to be an Etruscan presence or an Etruscan connection of sorts. But we also have to remember that this is a the Bay of Naples is at crossroads at this moment in time. We have the Oscan peoples that live in the Apennine Mountains to the east. We have the Greeks that are uh, busy in the Bay of Naples and to the south uh, as well. Uh, and we have the Etruscans. So we, uh, and on top of that, one can also uh, find some traces of Phoenician influence as well. So. Pointing to one particular group or one particular civilization at this point is, is difficult for Pompeii, and doing so only on the basis of these materials is also a little difficult because we can have some groups moving in and out, fa family groups, but that does not necessarily mean that they are overtaking or that they that the Etruscans are the founders of Pompeii, which some people like to see as being the case. Okay, so when it comes to buildings that are believed to have been around or constructed in this in this um, century evo what uh, what what types of buildings so from a utility perspective what types of buildings would have existed and do scholars have any sense of the number of buildings that would have existed in pompeii in the sixth century bce that is a, uh, a good question, and it requires a long answer. <laughs> Go for it. Um, one of the things to keep in mind is when we're looking at Pompeii now, is that most of the city, I'd say arguably nine, 
yeah, most of the city has been excavated to the level of the eruption in 79 uh, CE. Comparatively little has been excavated below that level. You can imagine that people are reluctant to smash through a mosaic floor to look for what's underneath it and look for traces of occupation underneath it. So, and part of the draw of Pompeii obviously is that it's this sort of time capsule stuck in time. So looking at actually the long-term history of Pompeii has had some, some limitations in terms of what archeologists have been able to do and have done. And I'd say maybe the last 15 to 20 years is really when we start have started to see concerted efforts to look below the level of 79 to understand uh, the history of the city. That means that the data that we have is very patchy. Um, and there are large parts of the city that we don't really know much about. But what we do know, and perhaps the largest monument uh, built uh, in this early period, it is the fortification wall, the defensive walls that uh, surround the plateau of Pompeii. There's evidence that there are uh, terracing structures, um, even perhaps just a, a large retaining wall or a, a wall demarcating the plateau which has built out of a local uh, stone, uh, a friable volcanic tough stone known as Papamonte. And traces have been found of this wall that encompass most of the Pompeian plateau. You have to remember Pompeii itself is a strategic place in the landscape. It's located at the mouth of the river Sarno, which uh, heads inland to the area behind Vesuvius and up to the Apennines. Uh, it is also a strategic land route because it connects southern Italy through uh, skirting the Vesuvius past uh, the coastline and up towards Na what is now Naples and then up towards Rome. That location in the landscape, then the plateau itself is easily fortifiable and therefore attracts um, the settlement uh, to begin with. Some people also like to see Pompeii early on as perhaps being almost like a sanctuary kind of foundation um, that then uh, attracts um, the population that then is concerned with the defense. So a, a stronghold in the landscape like this would be one which is easily defensible. You can put up this fortification wall uh, relatively easily. Um, it basically adds to uh, the defensive nature of this plateau. And then you can survey the landscape. In fact, some of the places uh, of, um, for instance, the, the temple of Athena we were talking about earlier is at a strategic place uh, on this plateau overlooking the, uh, the entire Sarno uh, River Basin and over to the sea as well. So if you're a mariner or um, you're approaching uh, Pompeii with a ship, you'll see Pompeii lying uh, very distinctly in, in the landscape. So those are some of the, the, the main, one of the bigger structures that we know about at this point in time. And the city seems to develop according to uh, the topography within this plateau. 
So, uh, for instance, some of the main uh, streets that we know about, uh, the roads, one of them being the Via Stabiana, which roughly cuts in a north-south direction through the Pompeian Plateau, was already laid out in the 6th century BC, and it was laid out because it follows a depression in the topography. So we know that some of the urban layout is already taking place at this moment in time. The discussion about what Pompeii looked like is very complex and has engaged scholars for well over 200 years at this point. And it primarily is uh, the result of looking at the layout of the city as it is today. So looking at where the streets run, looking at where the fortifications run, because also the fortifications will be rebuilt following the same circuit. There are a number of circuits that follow the same route. So that plateau, uh, that topographic definition, really remains a defining element of, uh, of Pompeii for most of its history, even though the city will eventually expand beyond it. The fortifications and the edges of the plateau are really a defining element uh, for the urbanization of the city. Then there is the topography itself. And I regret I can't show you a picture of this, but if you look at the grid layout of Pompeii, you'll notice that there is an area in the southwestern corner of the city where the street layout is irregular. And by that, I mean they, uh, many of the streets are at an angle. They don't obey a strict orthogonal grid layout that we see elsewhere in the city. And that is really where the debate has focused. Why is there an area in uh, this urban layout that has a different street orientation as opposed to the rest of the city where we have a much more regular sort of grid layout? And that has occasioned a number of theories in terms of how Pompeii developed. Um, originally, the uh, first scholars that engaged with Pompeii, people like uh, uh, Mao, um, believed that Pompeii was founded as a single unit, um, and that the design of the city was as a single unit. Then in 1913, a, a fellow named Haverfield, and later followed by the German von Gerkamp in the 1920s, identified this irregular set of streets. And they connected that, um, and they coined the term the Altstadt, that's German for the old city. And they believed that that irregular layout of streets was the result of an older core older part of the city. That's what Altstadt means in, uh, in German. And they believed then that that was founded in the 6th century BC and perhaps earlier. And that the rest of the city, which they called the new, the new Stadt, from Kirchner called the new Stadt or the new city, then either expanded out, out from there or was founded in the 4th century uh, BC. 
the archaeology in the last few years has been telling us a little bit of a different story about this. But there, there's been a lot of back and forth between the scholars, and this, the theory has changed and has refined. Some people like to see uh, the more recently like to see that the Pompeian Plateau was inhabited in the sixth century, the entire plateau, and that then the city shrank into the boundaries of the Altstadt in the fifth century when we have a, a period of um, large-scale abandonment at Pompeii for a few decades, and that the city then after that would expand back out into the Neustadt. The archaeology nowadays tends to point to a slightly more nuanced picture where there is evidence of occupation throughout the plateau in the 6th century and that the most recent theory sees this um, divergence in the street plan as being the result of the natural topography rather than being something which is related to urban development or even a defensive development because this idea of the Altstadt also was connected early on to a stronger fortified uh, area of the plateau. But uh, the evidence for a, a city wall at this point for the Altstadt seems to be a little bit more lacking. I know it's a lot, a lot to, to process, but that's where we stand. Um, in terms of our understanding of the city at this point. Yeah, and I'm glad you expanded on that, Evil. Thank you. The fortification wall then that you spoke and, um, and treated in the more the former part of that uh, response, is it believed that that fortification wall was either built in the 6th century or existed by the 6th century? Yes, so, so the picture that we have then is we have these sanctuaries. We have this fortification wall that goes up. Um, again, some people like to see it as an entire circuit. Some people like to see it more as sort of a patchy circuit. But there is some sort of effort to terrace slash fortify the plateau in the sixth century. That wall is around maybe 3.2 kilometers long if we connect it all the way around. So it is a monumental structure. And it is in existence for a couple of decades before another wall is built, this time built out of another kind of stone known as limestone or travertine. And it's built to a, according to a different technique, a technique which connects more to the Greek world, uh, where we have two kinds of two walls facing each other and then filled with rubble. That wall seems to date to the end of the 6th century, early 5th century. And it's another one of these monumental structures that goes up around. And it seems to be more substantial than the earlier one. Uh, the earlier one made out of Papamonte doesn't seem to be as substantial in terms of its size. Because the Papamonte is a very friable kind of rock. And it doesn't seem to be, to be able to hold up much in terms of weight. So it seems to be more sort of a demarcation kind of slash fortification wall to enhance the defensibility of the plateau. That also means then that some of the city gates are put into place at this moment in time. And those city gates, some of them like the Porta Stabia, the Porta Vesuvio, which are modern names, by the way, um, will remain largely in place for the rest of the history of Pompeii. So 
they become sort of defining elements within the, to the, the, the topographical layout of the city. And that's how the fortifications then tie into the broader development uh, of, of the city um, itself. On the in inside the city, in within the city walls, then we have evidence, uh, recent archaeological evidence, really uh, just unearthed in the last uh, 20 years or so, that um, some of the city blocks that we see in the later development of the city, starting in the fourth century after this hiatus of the fifth century BC, were already laid out in the 6th century. There's evidence of foundation walls uh, within these city blocks. And these city blocks, although they change perhaps by just a few degrees in their orientation, seem to be already established not largely in the 6th century BC. Again, the evidence is very patchy. Uh, things are still developing and archaeologists are still working on this. But that seems to be the case. So it looks like the city then in the sixth century has these sanctuaries that we talked about. It has this fortification wall, and it has these plots of land which have buildings on them. And there's probably also a measure of farming occurring within the city walls as well. Um, this is practical. It's easier to reach your fields, but also it connects to a defensive measure where if you are under prolonged siege and you can produce your own food on the plateau, then that is a great advantage. Uh, this also has to do with warfare at the time. Um, the warfare was kind of more organized along uh, raiding parties. Um, so it was easier for the population of the countryside to look for refuge inside a fortified place like Pompeii, the stronghold in the landscape, in times of danger, and then they could move back out and this kind of sort of this, this, this patchy layout um, of buildings, still probably according to this grid plan, uh, but not as heavily urbanized as we see it today, uh, was, uh, yeah, to a certain extent also dedicated to farming. And there's evidence for that in the archaeology as well. We have uh, places where a rich stratum of uh, of uh, humus has been found, which suggests that cultivation was happening on the plateau in the sixth century as well. And I wanna, I wanna have a follow-up question. I'm gonna have a follow-up question or two on the agricultural activity. Um, I wanna clarify then with the, with the wall. Uh, well, this isn't a clarification question. I haven't asked the question uh, yet. The, is, is, it, is it known or inferred how tall the fortification wall would have been? And then you'd mentioned that the circumference of the wall was 3.2 kilometers what would if, if you know off off the top of your head it's perfectly fine if 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 you don't um what 3.2 kilometers would be in a common metric in terms of uh, let's say acres or square feet or square meters some, something like that in in terms of the um what's inside the wall so more the the, the city proper um, if i remember correctly it's the city proper is 66 hectares um, okay. within the, 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 the wall itself. And um, the wall was probably, the, the Papamonte version was probably no higher than three to four meters, primarily because the stone is so friable um, and it 
is subject to erosion. So it, it seems that that might be one of the reasons why it was replaced fairly quickly as well. It's one of the arguments as to why it was replaced by this later wall within a few decades. Um, but it was still quite the investment to, to make, to build this wall. You have to have the manpower to do it. You have to have the know-how to do it. And you have to lay out its course uh, along the ridge of this plateau. So again, if, if you look at the topography of Pompeii, especially early on, it has steep edges on, on three sides. And the, the wall, we think, followed most of that. In the places where it's been found, it follows that contour outline in order. So if you have a cliff or a cliff edge of some sort, you can easily reinforce that by putting up even a, a low wall because you, you still have to climb up the cliff before you actually get to the wall. And that's how you can uh, fortify these places in the, in the landscape um, a lot more effectively by just following the contours, the natural contours of the terrain rather than trying to alter it. Have scholars speculated what kind of crops they would have grown in the city? Um, as I'm, I haven't really found anything that uh, points to a direct correlation between what was found in the ground and what uh, scholars speculate uh, or um, connect to an actual cultivation activity. but. At the time, you can imagine that uh, it was probably a mixed bag of things. Uh, we know that agriculture at the time also exploited different kinds of plants with each other. Uh, for instance, you could hang vines on trees and things like that. So it was probably a, a mixed bag of, uh, sort of open fields where you would have your regular crops and then you would probably have some areas where there was some vine growing, etc. Uh, so it was probably a mixed, that's my speculation as well. I'm not, I don't think we have enough evidence to say definitively uh, what were the major crops being grown on the plateau of Pompeii at the time. I understand. And it's also a perishable good. So it's not like those would uh, survive today as archeological evidence. Um, is it known or inferred what their water source or sources would have been? It seems at, at this point that most of uh, the water was uh, probably in the form of uh, wells. <clears throat> Excuse me, there were <clears throat> dug on the plateau. Uh, and we also have, um, well, we, we know of the later practice where uh, in the complaint houses, people would collect rainwater from the roofs. And this is, I presume, something that would have happened at the time um, as well. One of the problems for us uh, is that what remains of these structures that were built at the time is uh, very minimal. So what we what we have, the kind of construction that was happening was in the form of uh, foundation walls built usually out of uh, Papamonte, the, that local stone we've been talking about. And on top of these foundation walls, then we had a construction made out of wood and mud brick. So the foundation stones were there to keep the mud brick and the wood dry and to protect the walls themselves of the structures. So the foundation stones remain, 
and that is what we often find in the archaeological record. But the rest, because it's perishable materials, has largely disappeared. So we don't have any of the surviving mud brick anymore. This is just clay that was dried in the sun. Uh, or we don't have any of the wooden structures anymore. And uh, we do have, occasionally, we have things like post holes so that we can trace some of the wooden structures that were there as well. Some were just built completely out of wood. But that also means that we don't know what these buildings looked like in elevation. Um, and we don't know if, for instance, the, the roofs were configured in such a way to collect rainwater as they were at a later stage. But I, and we, we haven't found enough of these structures to be able to really figure out what the layout was of one of these domestic buildings in the 6th century BC. What we have often are just one or two walls or the corner of a building. Again, because it's so difficult to get down to the archaeology of that period. So we don't have a full plan of a house in the 6th century, at least not yet. Okay. Is there any funerary evidence that has that has been linked to this century? So far, nothing has been unearthed connected to the funerary practices of the 6th century. We do have, for later periods, we have, uh, in the 4th century, we have a couple of graves uh, dating to the 4th century and beyond, but most of the funerary evidence that we have dates to the Roman period of the city, when we have these large burial grounds um, being developed on the exterior parts of the city, which are probably sited, I presume, on top of earlier burial grounds, and they're, they just haven't been excavated yet. Also because you have to imagine that, once again, it's, it's the fortification wall that has provided almost like an imaginary boundary for the exploration of Pompeii for a very long time. Uh, it was not really until the 1950s, for instance, and 60s, that the southern part of the city outside of the walls was really excavated to any measure. Um, large parts on the eastern side of the city and the northern side of the city are still buried beneath the volcanic debris. Uh, this is also part of what happened during the excavations of the 19th century, where we have uh, uh, Queen Murat, who, um, under the French occupation, then uh, decides to explore Pompeii um, by having worker teams actually excavate the perimeter of the city by following the city walls. That was kind of revolutionary at the time. What she wanted to do was to sort of define the edges of the city so that they could go back in and buy the plots of land and have those excavated. As a result of this then, what's on the outside of the city wall has often not been explored with the same thoroughness. And in antiquity then, the usual practice was to bury the dead outside of the city walls. So there, there probably is evidence for uh, funerary practices to the 6th century. They just haven't been found yet, and they probably are still buried. One of the first things you brought up in this conversation today was the sanctuary evidence. What does the sanctuary evidence tell scholars about their religious orientation in the century? 
Um, this is a, a, a tricky question. Um, also because it is hard to connect the deities being worshipped to uh, a particular worldview. And with that I mean, uh, it's uh, uh, what scholars often, or what you often hear, I wouldn't say as uh, scholars, but there, there is a, a change of mind now. For a long time people would interchangeably say, you know, uh, the Roman Minerva is the same as the Greek Athena. That is probably not the case. Um, that's too easy of a, of, of a, of a merging between these uh, deities to make. And what I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is if we're looking at the religious landscape in the 6th century BC, we have sanctuaries that appear to be dedicated to Greek divinities. And this has then brought about the idea early on uh, in Pompeian scholarship that there was a distinct Greek phase to Pompeii. Right? There's always this, this battle as to whether the Etruscans were the ones who founded Pompeii, or if it's the Greeks who founded Pompeii, or if it's the Oscans who founded Pompeii. And those discussions have, have revolved primarily around the sanctuaries. And this is where I'm getting back to what kind of deities were being worshipped here. And essentially what we have is a temple which seems to be dedicated to Athena, and that stays a sanctuary to Athena even in the Roman period when she technically should be Minerva. That sanctuary that I said early, earlier on had a temple that was built in the Greek style. That means it had columns all around it uh, and it had a particular ornamental order to it, which is known as the Doric order. That had then led to uh, some Pompeians to say this was the time when Pompeii was Greek in the sixth century. However, on the flip side, if we look at the temple of Apollo, we then have these votive dedications that we talked about earlier, where we find a lot of this, this bukero, um pottery in the sixth century votive deposits. And those are also found outside in that other sanctuary I mentioned, the Fundo Yotsino. And that then has then been connected to the Etruscan phase of the city by many scholars. To complicate things more is that the Temple of Apollo, when it was rebuilt uh, in 2nd century BC, was built according to the Etruscan style temples, which is the, the, the style, the building style that the Romans had adopted as well, which is a different kind of temple. It's, it's on a high podium, it has a, a, a deep porch and a frontal orientation. Uh, and it's a very distinctive style. So that then has brought about this debate as to whether we have an Etruscan Pompeii and then a Greek Pompeii and then an Oscan Pompeii and then a Roman Pompeii. But for me, the evidence in the sixth century is not conclusive enough to say, yes, we have a, a direct Greek period for Pompeii or an Etruscan period of Pompeii. The reality is, is that we probably have a mixing of cultures occurring at uh, Pompeii. And there's also another sanctuary uh, known as the, uh, 
is now encased in a, in a house uh, where remains uh, of, a, of, of, of an Etruscan sanctuary. The house is called the House of the Etruscan Column because it has an Etruscan-style column embedded in its walls, and it looks like there might be a sanctuary associated, an open-air sanctuary, also dated to, to the 6th century CE, uh, that uh, is connected perhaps to the figure of Zeus, or uh, also known as Jupiter in the Roman world. And that Etruscan column then has also brought about this idea of an Etruscan influence um, on Pompeii. Again, then pointing to a specific religion, whether this then is the Greek Athena or the even the Etruscan Athena or the later Roman Minerva, or if it becomes very complex um, to really sort of narrow that down. With such diverse evidence, do you stay open to possibilities then in terms of it could have been Etruscans inhabiting it at one point in time, Greek people inhabiting it at another, or or a different case where they were both inhabiting it at the same time? I think that the evidence, to me at least, it suggests that we're having a sort of a, a blending of cultures here, that we're looking at groups of Greeks, groups of Etruscans, groups, groups of probably Oscans uh, from, that were uh, natives who were living there um, that uh, then created this settlement. You have to imagine, especially in the 6th century, there's a lot going on in this area of the world. The Etruscans are moving down in groups from the north. Uh, the Greeks are moving about. Uh, they have established cities like Kuma. They have set up colonies uh, to in southern Italy, it's been, the Bay of Naples really is sort of the limit as to how far they trek north on the Italian peninsula. Um, and the same with the Etruscans. So the, the, the line has been drawn uh, at the site of Paestum, Poseidonia, which is just to the south um, of the Bay of Naples, where it seems that we have, again, this intersection between Etruscan and Greek uh, cultures. And I think what's happening at Pompeii is that we're seeing these groups mixing, which is why the evidence is so um, so mixed. That's why we have a Greek-style temple, we have Etruscan kind of votive deposits, and I see it more as being uh, a community that is that is uh, adopting these various elements from these other cultures and creating the settlement. Yeah, and that's what I was um, getting at with that question, was seeing if that, if you felt that was a possibility of these different cultures inhabiting Pompeii at the same time. And it sounds like you believe that that is a possibility. Yes, yes. Okay, uh, closing question, Evo. And if we had more time, we could chat more about this topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there any ancient writers, so in the ancient period, that wrote about Pompeii in the 6th century BCE. So a later writer, is there anyone as a later writer that you want to highlight that wrote about Pompeii in this century? Um, there isn't 
really a, a direct someone writing about Pompeii in the sixth century. There are some foundation myths, though, that relate to um, the actual foundation of Pompeii and Herculaneum. The story goes that Hercules uh, was on his way home after completing um, his last of his tasks, uh, the cattle of uh, Gerion, and he was on his way home um, and he paused uh, one night with the cattle at the site, the future site of Pompeii, and specifically at the site where the temple of Athena would arise uh, later on. That is sort of a foundation myth, but that's that's later. It's, it's something that we see written in the sources uh, much later, after even the destruction uh, of Pompeii. And in fact, this this foundation myth then the idea is that it connects to the actual word Pompeii, because the 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 journey that Hercules or Heracles was undertaking. Uh, was also sort of a a, a, um, a procession, so a Pompeii in, in Greek, and that's where then the name Pompeii comes from because of that procession. And he, during that procession, then on his way home, he also stopped in Herculaneum, which then also gave Herculaneum, the nearby the nearby town, its own foundation myth. Um, later on, we know that the temple of Athena becomes one where. Hercules is also worshipped um, because of some of the decorations there. We have um, ornamentation on the roof, which shows Athena and Hercules together. So it looks like this sanctuary, which early on seems to be dedicated to Athena, is later on merged with uh, Hercules um, as well. So that's really all we know about writers and the early uh, development of Pompeii. That first founding tradition that you described, is it known who, who wrote that and when, approximately? Yeah, so it actually comes from much later sources. Um, we have uh, mention of this uh, story in uh, Virgil's Aeneid, and later writers like Salinas, uh, Marcianus Capella, and Isidorus of uh, Seville, um, Isidorus himself is obviously a much later a writer. So, a part of this this story then is um, perhaps a much later invention um, by much later scholars. So we, we don't have anyone actually writing about Pompeii um, at this in the sixth century BC. And Virgil would have been, um, which is an interesting uh, citation. Virgil would have been. First century BCE, right? Yeah. The the uh, the second one that you mentioned, I'm not I'm not um, familiar with. It, is it known when approximately that one would have been written? Uh, those are, um, if I remember correctly, they're probably much later. They're fourth, third, fourth century AD, so CE, somewhat later. Okay. Okay. So so wrapping up the conversation, Evo, is there is there any last point that you felt um, we haven't covered that you want to really get across in this in this uh, conversation today in terms of Pompeii in the 6th century BCE 
or do you feel that given the time that we had today, we covered things sufficiently? Um, I think we had a, a, a healthy conversation about this. And uh, again, I think that what we need to stress here is that a lot of these theories are based on uh, on the uh, actual layout of the city, the urban layout of the city. And it's only really in the last 20 years or so that the archaeology seems to be becoming more important in uh, these uh, discussions. Um, and as a result of this, we have to remember that um, this discussion is very fluid. Um, there's a lot of back and forth between scholars as to the validity of these theories. Uh, these theories are still changing. And that is part of uh, the story of Pompeii as well. It's, it's the scholarship. But also the fact that now we're starting to look back towards the original development of Pompeii. We always have to remember that the city was around for about 700 years before its destruction. So there's a lot of history going on. There's a lot of development. Um, and it's the further back in time you go, the hazier things get and more, uh, the more difficult they become to, uh, to interpret. You did a great job today, Evil, speaking through this, uh, this topic. Thank you for coming on the, on the show and chatting. Thank you. So the book that I mentioned, everybody, that Dr. Vandergraaf wrote, he's author of The Fortifications of Pompeii and Ancient Italy. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Evo and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.